It's Tuesday, September 7th, and you've got Oz in your ears. Thank you, thank you. That was the sound of our guest ensemble, the St. Louis Aquarium Choir. Hello, dear friends. I'm Assistant Pastor Hurley Barflyer here at the One Way Light Church in Tipping Point, Washington. We are gathered in the Hello Kitty Sanctuary to give thanks for all we have taken from others and to take back the world where that can happen again. I now have the pleasure of bringing to the pulpit a man whose books and tapes have inspired us all. He's on a national megachurch tour promoting his new book, From Zero Sum to Dim Sum. Welcome, Cubby Vineline. Well, thank you, Hurley, and thanks for the gift of my beautiful birth certificate necklace here. If only our so-called president would wear one around his neck, then we could all put away the terrible fear that he is the reincarnation of Saladin, the seed of Islam, risen from the tar sands of Araby to build a mosque upon the White House, turn us from west to east, from pork to lamb, from urban... Two turbans! I look at my watch and ask myself, is it too late? I open the door on an empty future and wonder aloud, in this great struggle to regain our eternal prosperity and unquestioned dominance, need we fight alone? No! 1.3 billion pagans stand ready to join us in this glorious crusade. But, and this is the but we have to sit on and think this through, but we can't ask the hungry multitudes of the Middle Kingdom to sacrifice for us unless we are willing to sacrifice for them. We consume... 25 times the resources they do, and while I think we definitely deserve it, we're going to have to cut back until together we own the world. See this bag? It's filled with egg rolls, sweet and sour pork, mushu beef and orange chicken. Take out taken from the very mouths that will join us in the mighty mission. I say to you, I say to you, no more takeout. No more takeout until we've taken our muscle cars back from the muscle men. No more Chinese food until all the Chinese have food. Please join me now. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese have food. No more Chinese food till all Chinese. Welcome to Radio Free Oz, coming to you, of course, from the newly engorged Radio Free Oz. I'm just we- full of it. Oh, no, the website, yeah, yeah, full of comments, people writing in. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, co-host David Osmond over there. David, it's just amazing. Uh, You know, and now we're getting the blog up. Bergman's blog's coming, and people will be able to, like, interact with me, which is a mixed blessing. (laughs) You can tell them that. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. And also, by the way, we are bringing video to the Radio Free Oz side. Videos. Uh, uh, Pieces uh, shot of you and I putting the show together. 
It's going to be called The Making of Oz, and it'll be available up on the site for you to take a look at and, you know, enjoy. And yeah, we've tinted everything green for you, so you don't have to put on those silly glasses. And we don't have to wear any more of that funny makeup. No, right? no, no. And was... Also, we're considering and uh, uh, turning out something that we call the um, Radio Free Oz House Parties here up at the Blue U Lodge. It'll be live webcasting. A modestly ticketed pay-per-view so that people can spend like a Saturday evening with us, you know, Mm -hmm. and say, because we know that most people listen to us in the car or at work or such, 86% download us on something it looks like somebody else's computer, some, some, you know, some business's computer. And so maybe, you know, what do you do on a later Saturday night? There's Saturday Night Live. You've watched that for 80 years. Maybe something a little more intimate. David and I, people around here having some fun. So we're thinking of doing some live webcasting. You know, I'll tell you, our our, our friend uh, from Bloomington, Indiana, came out to uh, do sound for yeah. our Agatha Christie production. And he fitted into Whidbey Island in such a an immediate and logical way. It was great because he went to a party. Yeah. It was one of those great parties. You know, guy about town, he's 70. Everybody's there. His family, his family's family, his wife's family's family. The whole thing. It was just a perfect Whidbey Island thing. And that's what we would do, I think, for listener watchers who would come here because the atmosphere on this island is unlike anywhere else anybody lives. And that's not to put anywhere else down. It's just this is very special. It's Brigadoon here. It is Brigadoon. We're going to do our Brigadoon house parties. We're going to bring people in. It's going to be funny, but it's also going to be warm and very intimate. Now, one of the things that's happening on the site is more and more people are responding. They're commenting on particular shows. Yeah, yeah. Now, here's one from Satori, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's about the piece we did called Wrong Boots, Wrong Ground, about the the secret war that's burgeoning in Pakistan that America's putting there. He says, um, as the American people have been getting bombarded with news reports of U.S. involvement with Pakistan recently, first using the pretext of foreign aid, I've been acknowledging to myself that it's just a matter of acclaiming U.S., of acclimating U.S. citizens to the planned invasion of Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, now Pakistan. It's tough not to notice the pattern. In fascist America, your government uses the media to tell you what you, the people, want it to do. To draw a parallel and (laughs) see if you'll salute the somewhat mixed metaphor, our friendly GMO spawner Monsanto, uh, who who was mentioned on RFO a few few days ago, uses an equivalent strategy. Monsanto's genetically modified seeds were also illegally smuggled into countries like Brazil and Paraguay before GMOs were approved. Roberto Franco, Paraguay's deputy agriculture minister, admitted – it is possible that Monsanto, let's say, promoted its varieties and its seeds before they were approved. We had to authorize GMO seeds because they had already entered our country in a, let's say, unorthodox way. Mm-hmm. The way our special forces are making their entrance into Pakistan. Yeah. And so he says, bless the House of Representatives for attempting to call the rest of the government on the Pakistan deception. That the bill was defeated seems to be in direct violation of the oath of office of the representatives who voted it down, but it'll take the American people to make them accountable. Only the citizens of Pakistan, including those sworn to protect the sovereignty of Pakistan, this is a quote from the article, can now remove the United States Armed Forces from Pakistan. The oath-keeping members of the House of Representatives are quoted as saying, perhaps not. The U.S. citizenry has quite a lot to say about it as well. They just aren't saying it yet. I wonder, Dave, do you think the American people can actually stand up and say no? This is wrong. This is war without war declared. Finally, well, an end to all of this, all of this covert action. Let us return and heal our own country. And it's building, it's building, I think, that uh, rejection. And here's a country that's lost now half, at least, of its infrastructure. It's, it's, and it's 20% of its people are homeless from the flood. They are starving. I mean, I, I, I did The last t- thing you want to do is put boots on the ground in right. Pakistan. I did a Twitter. I did a tweet. Call me Pete the Tweet. Pete the Retweet. And I said, simply within 140 characters, I said, Pakistan flood victims are breaking up their furniture to make fires to cook. And uh, a guy down in Florida is moaning because he can't burn the Koran. Give me a break. Got a lot of response. Got a lot of people that uh, one guy who's got a big show on Fox News suddenly started following us. Uh-huh. Just because it began to make sense. And we're going to start following him. All kindred spirits, welcome into Oz Network. That's twitter.com slash Oz Network. Who knew? 
This is from the Asia Times. It's by Ambassador M.K. Brandrakumar, a diplomat from India, a, a career diplomat. He writes, The humanitarian situation resulting from the unprecedented floods in Pakistan has been turned into a playground of regional geopolitics. The responsibility for this primarily lies with the United States, which fashioned its response to the crisis in a needlessly competitive spirit. Why am I not surprised? You have to understand... A fifth, and we're going to, you know, a fifth of the landmass is underwater. The needs of Pakistan are of stupendous proportions. Even cold statistics bring this out. One fifth of the landmass of Pakistan is inundated, and the lives of 20 million people have been affected. 20 million people. Nothing further needs to be said about the enormity of the human sorrow. The fact that the United Nations launched an initial appeal for $460 million for the immediate relief underscores the magnitude of the crisis. Although, according to the Pakistani foreign minister, that amount will only cater to about 6 to 8 million people for 90 days only. So it's just, excuse the metaphor, a drop in the bucket. Yet, Pakistan's crisis presents itself as a theater of public diplomacy for the United States to burnish its image among Pakistani people, of whom 59% regard America as an enemy country, according to a July 29th Pew Global Attitudes Project poll. Wait a minute. This is the country that, that, that's supposed to be our linchpin ally there uh, against the Taliban and, and the overthrow of the Afghan government. These, these are the people that Hillary Clinton is bringing billions of bucks and 60% of them think we're the enemy. There's a disconnect here somewhere. The window of opportunity opens in other directions too, says the ambassador. The... Um, and, and I think he's right here. He says, the areas of Pakistan where the extremists and terrorists have been most active also happens to be the most affected. The expectation in Washington seems to be that U.S. Marines will be working in the field closely with the Pakistani military and that a sort of rank-and-file camaraderie is expected to develop that could have useful fallouts for the war in Afghanistan. I don't like the use of the word fallouts and Pakistan in the same (laughs) sentence. It just nukes my skin. Okay, indeed, the Marines will likely come across the relief workers of the Islamist charity organizations affiliated to rapidly anti-American groups, especially the band Lakshar-e-Tayyiba, which figures in the U.S.'s list of terrorist groups, and the political party Jamaat-e-Islami, which takes pride, publicly at least, in berating the U.S. regional policies. The U.S. operatives could make useful contacts with the Islamist elements involved in relief work, and these could be followed uh, followed up. <clears throat> yeah, great. The Marines, man. The jarheads meet the jihadists. Uh, yeah, man, hey, it's cool. Have some gum, man. Let's blow some stick. Um, what do you got there? No. Um, oh, really? A lamb patty. I can't wait. And, you know, they'll just become buds, right? Have maybe a few cases of lime bud light. We'll put the jihadists and the Marines in the same space. Hey, we got a Twitter. Your name Hassan. Aren't you all named Hassan? Well, my name's Bill, and we're all named Bill. Again, the U.S. is a global power, and unsurprisingly, it has begun linking the floods in Pakistan with the problem of climate change, one of the lead items on the foreign policy agenda of the Barack Obama administration. Well, that's a little abstract for the 20 million people who are underwater in Pakistan. Oh, not to worry. It's just global warming. I mean, I don't think there are any global warmer deniers out there in Pakistan. I don't think they have an opinion. They're too busy breaking up their beds and cabinets to burn wood, you know, to make fire so they won't, so they can eat and not freeze. Richard Holbrook, the U.S. Special Representative to AFPAC, openly wondered, I know we don't have a definitive answer, but to what extent is there some connection between the Pakistani floods, the Russia fires, global warming, the Himalayan glacial runoff? What is the preliminary best sense of that? Well, you got me. Another senior U.S. official, Rajiv Shah, administrator of the U.S. Agency for International Development, added, you know, I think we all can recognize that we should expect to have more large-scale erratic weather events. That trend is leading to a greater number of large-scale hurricanes, a greater number of floods, hotter and drier growing conditions, and it's making it very hard for the least resilient, the most lower-income communities in the world to survive. Which means world riots! 
right? Absolutely world riots, and we aren't ready, and they're going to blame us, like that imam said uh, that I quoted in, in a previous show. Well, if you're going to die, better to kill the infidels. Huh? How the U.S. links these ink spots in climate change, Pakistan's floods, Russia's fires, and the glacier melt-up north of Kashmir in the contested region of Shianchen on the geopolitical plane and transfers the impulses to its regional and global diplomacy in the coming period will bear watching. I guess so. Then, there are the profound implications of the Pakistani floods from the strategic and political angles, which are uniquely important to the U.S.'s war effort in Afghanistan at the present time. First, there is the lurking possibility that the Taliban might take advantage of the crisis in Pakistan. You think so? You think they might take advantage of the fact that everybody hates being flooded out and everybody hates America and it doesn't take long to put an equal sign between them? The noted Pakistani journalist Ahmed Rashid wrote recently in the British Daily Telegraph, Large parts of the country that are now cut off will be taken over by the Pakistani Taliban and affiliated groups, and governance will collapse. Now, there's a nightmare. The scary scenario may seem far-fetched and somewhat propagandistic, but the possibility remains that tepid response by the Pakistani government to the massive reconstruction task could alienate public opinion. It's already a tepid response. The president or premier of... Uh, Af- uh, of Pakistan is already beating himself, you know, over the head, uh, saying, I am weak, there's going to be problems, I don't know what to do. And the Islamists are out there waving the black flag, say, come here, we've got the tents, we've got the food, we've got the help. It's all, it's all with us. All this is linked to a much bigger question as well. To what extent will the 2010 floods turn out to be a game changer uh, for Pakistan's political economy? And will the civilian leadership grab the opportunity to seize the political high ground in its shadow boxing with the military? I don't think so. The signs available so far that, on the contrary, the Pakistani civilian leadership stands tarnished by its handling of the crisis. This means the military retains the upper hand vis-a-vis the embattled civilian government in the calculus of power for the foreseeable future. I read, I'm reading the Indian ambassador's uh, report here in its somewhat special English to let you know that What's going on in Pakistan is so complicated, so deep, so problematic. They're awful allies. They have been betraying us from the very beginning. At the same time, they are desperately poor. They are a, by its foundation, an Islamist nation. So it's no surprise that there are so many jihadi groups over there. The question is, aside from helping them you know, on a humanitarian level, why are we spending our time trying to ally ourselves with people who don't like us, don't want us, and only want to use us to their own nefarious ends? Well, Pete, we've talked about uh, uh, the gays in the military, don't ask, don't tell. We've talked about drones. But what we haven't talked about, about is about radar. That's true. We haven't talked about radar in a long time. That's right. And here's why we should talk about radar. Because it's a palindrome? Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid that and uh, move I'll, on. Move right, right ahead here. Wind turbines are a big deal, right? Wind turbines are oh. supposed to revolutionize uh, the uh, energy production. They're going to help. Production, yep. whole yep. thing. Okay. They're running into trouble, wind turbines are, because of, yes, you guessed it, radar. And mm-hmm. Why? Eliminating turbine clutter on radar is complicated. It seems like a you, you turn on a wind turbine, it looks like a 747 is coming straight at you. But it's okay? only like 50 feet off the ground. Hey, Any 747. It's complicated, didn't I no. say? Oh, was you're right. Of course, I took okay. that simplistic view again. Part of the challenge is that many radar systems in use in the United States, excuse me for beginning to giggle because this is the same old thing, date back to the 1950s. And have outdated processing capabilities, in some cases, less than those of a modern laptop computer. Hey, didn't you tell me that that the Long Island Railway was down for a day because the switch that burned out was from like 1904? That's right. Installed a hundred years ago and they don't survive a lightning strike, you know. While there are technology fixes to ease interference in these aging systems, it can be tricky 
just it's, it's I'm sorry, this is really tricky. We got all these scientists, right? All these people who are working and for the government. And the best they can say is, well, what's gonna, your it's tricky? Be, it's it's going to be, be tricky. tricky. Which means what? It's over my pay grades. Uh, on radar, a wind turbine can look like a 747 on final approach, said Peter Drake, technical director at Raytheon. We don't want to have this. We don't want to have the software eliminate a real 747. So their radar is sophisticated only to the point where it can't tell the difference between a 747 and a wind turbine. I'm not flying until they take the tricky out of that equation. I've got Anna Hamilton uh, from Humboldt County, California, on the Skype again. This is our second conversation. She is a songwriter and host of a Rant and Rave on KMUD up there and was responsible for putting together a forum called What's After Pot. This was in March, and it dealt with the economic impact of marijuana legalization. She got a lot of very, a very uh, eclectic crowd there, uh, government, growers, uh, people doing secondary work and such. And now we got an opportunity to talk to Anna and find out how the conference went and uh, what it's, uh, what's going to come after it. Anna, good to have you back on Radio Free Oz. Thank you, Peter Bergman. Okay, so you, you got, you got a, a really interesting group of people together in March. How many attended the forum altogether? Uh, about 200 people. Wow. And, and where did it take place? It took place in Redway, California, at the Mateo Community Center, home of Reggae on the River. Okay, so there you are. you got 200 people there, including people from county government, local government, education, you know, agriculture. How did it go down? Give, 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 give our listeners a precy of, of the event. Uh, well, uh, I made my little speech, which was uh, the economy's headed for the toilet. Mm-hmm. Uh, prices are collapsing regardless of whether uh, marijuana is legalized or not. Uh, the values collapsed by more than half, well, more than half, and uh, on the wholesale uh, level. You right. poor people out there that are paying up to $7,000 a pound at the one-eighth rate don't realize that we're not getting paid that much to uh, sell our marijuana to the medical dispensary at the wholesale level. We're really hurting up here, mm-hmm. um, considering there's no other employment. And uh, most of, I'm over 60, and most of my friends' kids are at least 30 and have two children mm-hmm. and lead productive lives and have built schools and fire departments and radio stations and community centers and We've created a beautiful community here with a lot of culture, and we're. So you remember Bob Dylan said, "To live outside the law, you must be honest." Yep. You know we have the same percentage of criminal behavior as any other part of the world, I believe. But uh, uh, so we we we're. It's sad for me to watch the economy decline, and see it threaten young families that are 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 trying to do right, except for the one detail of. The way they make their living, and uh, the um, the forum brought together a wide spectrum of of county players, uh, economic, government, education, medical, as you mentioned, yeah. and the conclusion shocked me. The conversation uh, we didn't have any cameras, although we had a wide so group of press people represented there. But but uh, uh, if anybody wants, by the way, to hear the forum, you can go on knud.org and look for March 25th. It aired in an abbreviated form between 8 and 10 p.m., and you can hear it. Uh, the conversation very de- quickly developed to the economic I- opportunities of legalized marijuana for value-added products and services like bed and breakfast, tour the marijuana farm, smoke pot in our cafes in Humboldt. And these, these were the more... Um, shall we say, libertarian and humanistic and uh, uh, liberal to a degree, or at least tolerant, or people who don't want anything to do with pot, but for the last 30 years have realized that the economic impact has been positive on the county and realized that the whole economy is based on marijuana up here. Marijuana government jobs, that's it. And uh, uh, that it's 
there's only one one way for the county to go, and that is to uh, create as much opportunity for economic development with legalized recreational cannabis and marijuana use and to support, uh, they do, uh, Humboldt County does 100% support safe access to medical marijuana for patients. Uh, so that really shocked me to hear people from foundations that do major multi-million dollar grants for business startups talking about, well, we could help you uh, cluster market and we could help you develop target marketing and you'll need more products and services like uh, uh, bay tours, smoke on the water bay tours. <laughs> they were just going on and on. And <laughs> my mind it. was, I was blown away. And you can go on my website, AnnaHamilton.net, and link to Kim Kemp's article, Welcome to Pot City, and people can read this. You may not realize who, who's saying it, but basically the people that are saying it are the real players in our, in our economic community. They don't represent the whole county or the or the whole or they're anybody but themselves when they're speaking and I'm sure there's a lot of people that still don't want anything to do with pot but it's I believe it's less than 15% of the population would cut off their nose to spite their face the rest of them understand where the money comes from and would support any development we can create up here let me ask you one question Anna in the days before grow lights and all that the uh, the the area up there was a perfect place to grow hemp, but now the fact that you can grow it indoor anywhere, is there any reason to believe that the Emerald Triangle will remain dominant as, as uh, in marijuana production? Is there any reason that Kansas can't do just as well, or North Dakota, or, you know, or Vermont? Well, first of all, hemp does not contain THC. I understand. And it is a non-psychoactive uh, source of fiber uh, seed oil yeah. and and uh, could be a real biofuel that's easy to grow and uses a minimum amount of pesticides. Uh, cannabis, marijuana, uh, 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 cannabis uh, sativa, sativa yeah. uh, are is is high in THC and it grows in different regions. It produces different qualities. Here we have cooler nights, yeah. and you get a different. Uh, we have lots of microclimates up here. That, 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 that it's very, very hilly here. It's not even hilly. It's 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 like Appalachia with these steep ravines and hollers and gorges. And but that you're talking that about outdoor growing, right? Having outdoor it's very growing, small, not indoor. If you growing. could take the seeds that you get from Humboldt County yep. and put them in an indoor show and grow it anywhere in the world. Right. That will not give you Humboldt County pot. And one of the discussions that came up in the What's After Pot forum was. Uh, the need to, to create an Appalachian designation uh, to create the um, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, brand or place trademark? of origin is yeah. a, is a uh, process in in creating an Appalachian, just like Napa wine. Right, gotcha. And, yes, and uh, there is a lot of discussion about. Um, well, there's a group, there's a section of of marijuana activists who ins, uh, insist that. That it's not right to put alcohol and marijuana in the same uh, context because we don't have any of the health and illness and and death uh, statistics that alcohol does. And yeah, but that, there's another group that thinks it's spiritual, and there's another group that doesn't think it's a drug. And you know, so there's a lot of controversy inside the marijuana community about where pot uh, fits, but. The Appalachian thing is is a critical factor there, uh, and and indoor and outdoor. You, if you like those cardboard tomatoes at the supermarket, then you'll love indoor pot. Well, neither of them. Uh, Car- the, those those cardboard tomatoes just don't get me high. Well, Anna, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this off for now. We're gonna have plenty more of this coming down the line. I know our producer Bill McIntyre. I just want to say one thing quickly, Peter. There is a lot of pesticides that are used in the production of indoor marijuana. Be careful what you buy. Oh, I will. Outdoor, if you can. Yeah. Now, um, I know Bill McIntyre is coming to to Emerald Triangle this uh, coming up, and he's going to have his TV camera with him, and he's going to be doing video and audio on all you folks. I can't wait to see the results. Thank you so much, Anna Hamilton. You can catch her on KMUD Radio. She's got a show called Rant and Rave. Go up on the web. When you're listening to Oz, go over and listen to KMUD. Thanks, Anna. Talk to you soon, okay? Thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure. From Politico, top U.S. military officials sounded optimistic about Iraq's future, but 
<laughs> the butt, said it will be several years before Americans will know whether victory has been achieved. So we're going to sit around for several years, right? We need to see if we have to go back into Iraq after having gone in in the first place under under lies and deception, ruined what was there. I'm no fan of uh, the late uh, Saddam Hussein, but things didn't get any better. And then we're going to find out down the line whether we have to go back and do it all over again. Quote, to determine whether we've won the war or not, won the war? We can see that in three to five years, as we see how Iraq turns out, said General Ray Odierno. Uh, he said this on Face the Nation. Uh, he'll be retired by then. He's the outgoing commander. In a series of interviews less than a week after the last U.S. combat troops left Iraq, Odierno, the outgoing commander, said the country will be ready for the U.S. withdrawal to be completed in September 2011. Quote, we continue to see political development, economic development. All of these combined together will start to create, get that, start to create an atmosphere that creates better security. So we're going to start to create an atmosphere that will then create better security. I can hardly wait to create. He said only a complete failure of Iraqi security forces would call for bringing American combat troops back, but left open the possibility of a U.S. military presence as much as 10 years from now. Oh my, it makes me weary. And a former U.S. ambassador to Iraq said the United States may stay involved as Iraqi politicians struggle to form a new government months after parliamentary elections in March. Why am I not surprised? If the government of Iraq requests some technical assistance in fielding systems that allow them to continue to protect themselves from external threats, we could be there, Odierno told CNN, comparing the potential setup to current agreements with Saudi Arabia and Egypt. If that's what we're talking about, potentially, we could be there beyond 2011. Oh, my, oh, my. Get me a Tums. Johnny went to war at the tender age of 17 Went to fight the devil 9,000 miles away In a land that Johnny never even heard of We got him fighting devils And every day We send another on his way Think his mama prays for her baby Every day another demon makes his way Every day there's another devil Mama prays for her baby and every day. Another demon makes his way every day. It's another devil.
Well, I, the military has been in the news this week. I, I know we've talked about the military. We've talked about drones. We've talked about Afghanistan, the whole thing. Well, how many generals do you think there are in uh, the Army? Uh, let me see. I know I know that answer. It's uh-huh. too many. Yeah. Ah, you hit it on the money. That's yeah, really I, I, good. I, I know. There are exactly, right now, uh, uh, 41 generals and admirals, 146 lieutenant generals and vice admirals, 311 major generals, a model of a modern major, major general, general, and 465 brigadier generals and rear admirals, lower half. Whatever, please. That's what it says right here. Rear admirals, lower half. I, I don't no want to go in there. That. Don't ask me. Don't <laughs> uh, tell me. Okay. It seems like open season on generals. The generals don't want to get rid of the generals. You Is there what? any surprise in this? Why don't we replace the drones with the extra generals? Send them in. Good idea. That is a good idea. The uh, 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 salary cap for generals is about $180,000. We're not really talking about a lot of money here, right? It's up, up from 130 Don't a decade me, ago. David. Just don't 180, tease me, David. Just don't tease me. 180. You know, they have the benefit of military pension system. You know, they do have that. You got to be in there for 40 years, but you get it, you know. However, <laughs> this is what's costing them the money, see? It's the it's the payroll that goes on afterward this uh, uh this uh, uh isn't uh pension pay and, and so you can't leave it or you couldn't until recently like like your wife if you split with your wife she couldn't get half your pension because it was like keep you in the army pay uh, but they fixed that one okay here's the here's the here's the, the guy though i love this quote Arnold L. Panero, a retired Marine Corps major general, head of an independent board appointed by uh, Mr. Gates, the Secretary of Defense, to examine Pentagon spending, said, General Motors did not set out to become a benefits agency that occasionally built a car, he said. We don't want the Department of Defense to become a benefits agency that occasionally kills a terrorist. Um, that's really so what's the problem well the problem where where does all the money go dave the problem is as uh, as general panero said when you have a head dog you also have a deputy dog and then a deputy deputy dog and a deputy 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 dog and fleas and a lot of layers of this little bureaucracy so it estimates that each one of these generals because they have a security detail senior advisors communications team schedulers and personal aides we haven't got any of those no we don't i come on slap on a star all that stuff it costs about a million dollars a year for each one of these generals to walk around with all these people holding on to his train and those dudes aren't doing jack this is david osmond for radio free oz and i'm here at orly airport just outside paris uh, and i'm talking again with the world famous designer yves sansstool <laughs> he's just about to travel to abu dhabi with a new line of collegiate fashions uh, eve what is behind all this what's the reason well david's that petite sandbox of midis culture has imported a famous american university nyu and mm. i've realized the fashion statement for the new collegians, brings the culture of the Big Apple right to the dry date. That's what they're calling the new desert campus. Uh-huh, the dry date campus of NYU. Well, what, what, what kind of clothes have you got? Well, for the co-ed girls, the burqa bikini, or uh-huh. the burkini, as they call it. it, it the burkini. It covers huh? uh, what Abu Dhabians say are the most lustful parts of the body, the eyes, the lips, the hair, with the black drapes. Oh, well, yes, but what about the, the breasts and the, you know, the pubic area? Uh, in Abu Dhabi, those, those body parts do not exist. Ah. You see, the emir has declared the bra to be un-Islamic. So first I burned the bra like Judith Chicago, mm-hmm. and then I banned the bra, mm-hmm. and I finally abandoned the bra and designed with my Chinese partner, Wu Wei, the abandoned bra. True weightless fashion. Weightless, I see. You certainly will. <laughs> well, but now, what, what have you got for the men? I've designed the turbo turban. You know, the Abu Dhabians like to race their platinum-plated Audubon Mercedes top-down around the dunes, so with the turbo turban, you are guaranteed to keep your head and make a fashion statement on the test. <laughs> <laughs> Same time. Well, and your famous footwear. Ah, oh, for men and women, a special line of purity shoes. Very purity. big over there. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. They contain no mirrors mm-hmm. for looking up the burqa. Uh-huh. And they have not even one page of any holy book inside. Mm-hmm. And the heels are filled with hot sand 
for comfort in running away from terrorist activities. Oh, and what about sunglasses? I know that's a big line of yours. Certainly. Yeah. I have designed for women the garbo bands. The iconic eye coverings of solid gold that are completely opaque when they are looked at by men. And for the men? Huzoramic aviators. Look at these. They look so cool all the time. And they look good with any kind of mustache. Oh, yeah. Oh, they look very nice with mine. I, I have to say, I look positively Middle Eastern. Well, what's your advice uh, to new students there at Abu Yu? Well, they should bring their London fog along because the average daily temperature is a lucky 108. Mm-hmm. Well, I must go on as a Royal Abu Dhabi Airlines as a special flight for my models and me. I, I suppose uh, they're all students. Of eh? course. NYU features uh, degrees in gold and oil management, anti-democratic law, and abstract art history. Who knows, with a diploma from Abu Dhabi, you might become I'm a minister of culture. A minister of culture? Is that, that a religious degree? It is now. <laughs> well, this is David Osmond for Radio Free Oz. I'm here at Orly Airport in Paris. Hey, like I said, it's only a matter of time before the drones come home. Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad has inaugurated the country's first domestically built unmanned bomber aircraft, calling it an ambassador of death to Iran's enemies. This guy's a real brander, isn't he? I mean, he really wants to make himself stand out as Mr. Peace. Hey, and it's all gold, by the way. It's a gold-plated drone bomber, which he calls the ambassador of death. Well, I guess that makes him a lot more creative than Tony Hayward, who calls his yacht Bob. The four-meter-long drone aircraft can carry up to four cruise missiles and will have a range of 620 miles, according to a state TV report, not far enough to reach the arch-enemy Israel. So they're going to have to find a closer arch enemy. Mm, What geography will do to your politics? The jet, as well as being an ambassador of death to the enemies of humanity, has a main message of peace and friendship, said uh, Bonadina at the inauguration ceremony, which fell on the country's national day for its defense industries. They have a national day for defense industries? We think that's odd. In America... Every day is the national day for defense industries. Okay, the goal of the aircraft, called Karar, or Striker, is to keep the enemy paralyzed in its bases, he said, adding that the aircraft is for deterrence and defensive purposes. I think he took that line directly from some pamphlet that you get as you walk into the Pentagon. Everything you see, everything we do is for defense. Even offense is defense because the words are very similar. The president championed the country's military self-sufficiency program and said it will continue until the enemies of humanity lose hope of ever attacking the Iranian nation. Here's something we got to understand. These are Persians. These are not Arabs living in disparate little places that aren't really countries that have been created or somehow sprung out of the ground as oil erupted. This is Persia. But for three or four hundred, you know, CGI troops at Thermopylae, we'd be speaking Persian instead of Greek. Well, we're not not speaking Greek, but we're speaking a language that's heavily influenced by Greek. So this is a long country with a real culture. And they're making their, you know, they're making their own weapons and they're making their own stuff. And we're going to have to come to terms with them. And that doesn't mean blowing them up. That means coming to terms with them and stop overthrowing their governments like we did back in 53 when the CIA overthrew a perfectly democratically elected government and put the Shah in its place. And it's been toxic ever since. Okay. Iran launched an arms development program during its 1980 to 1988 war with Iraq, which Hussein started and we remained neutral, happy to see all these people just kill each other forever. Uh, So the development program was to compensate for a U.S. weapons embargo and now produces its own tanks, armored personnel carriers, missiles, and even a fighter plane. Iran frequently makes announcements about new advances in military technology that cannot be independently verified. Yes, and we we often invade countries that, <laughs> and the, the notions cannot be independently verified. I think we've got boots on the ground in Pakistan, but I'm not sure. State TV later showed video footage of the plane taking off from a launching pad and reported that the craft traveled at speeds of 560 miles per hour and could alternatively be armed with two 250-pound bombs or a 450-pound guided bomb. It's like, <laughs> guided bomb sounds like a tour through the DOD. Iran has been producing its own light unmanned surveillance aircraft since the late 1980s. The ceremony came a day after Iran began to fuel its first nuclear power reactor with the help of Russia amid international concerns over the possibility of a military dimension to its nuclear program. 
Like Israel doesn't have a military dimension to its the program it denies that we don't have a military dimension to our nuclear program or North Korea or China or the few others that are in that awful club. Iran insists it is only interested in generating electricity. Well, they sure are doing a whole lot of that.
Hello, Ozaneers. That's what I call the couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. Couriers take tens of billions of dollars across the border to Mexico every year, stashing the cash in spare tires and baby diaper shipments, according to the Washington Post. Custom agents on both sides of the border are overwhelmed by the task of stopping all that money. They seize about 1% of the cash, though officials say the job is essential if violent drug gangs are to be stopped. Mexican cartels simply write off the tiny amount of money they lose at the border as the cost of doing business because they lose a smaller percentage of their revenue than one would pay in service fees for withdrawing cash from the ATM. It cost them more to go down to the ATM in Tijuana and take out billions of dollars worth of cash, so send it over with the baby diapers. Cash is transported in bricks of $20 bills wrapped in plastic and often left with the sticky residue or powder from marijuana, cocaine, and methamphetamine. Custom agents have found record amounts of cash since Mexico and the U.S. began joint operations in March 2009, but they're still hardly making a dent in the drug gang's income. No, let's spend the money on that dang fence in Arizona. Let's spend the money on drones and, 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 and cadres of National Guard to keep out people who are pouring into the country to work instead of spending the money cat- capturing all of this drug funds that's going into Mexico, creating this huge massacre of people. Then, of course, there's the point that because drugs are illegal, it makes this possible. What about, what about legalizing these drugs? Hey, I don't think methamphetamine is good for anybody. I'm not much of a fan of cocaine, and I've had my pot now and then. The fact is, is that making it illegal is only exacerbating an already desperate situation. Well, we just made another Radio Free Oz, Dave, and, you know, now we've got video up of what it looks like for the two of us to be sitting here and schmoozing and have this much fun here in gorgeous blue. Golly, I can only see you, and you can only see me. But they they can can see both of us. Oh, I don't know, I don't know. Hey, tang me, Daddy. Tang you, tang you. I'm going to start a a group. These are five poms on the autumn fields. We're Uh, there. I'll I'll read over a course of time here. This is the first one of these poems by Tu Fu. Day by day the autumn fields grow bleaker, and the cold river ripples the blue sky. Mm. I have moored my boat in a barbarous country of mountains and constellations, and made my home in a western village. When my dates are ripe, I let my neighbors pick them. When my sunflowers are choked with weeds, I hoe them out myself. An old man doesn't need much food. What's left on my plate I scatter in the brook to feed the fish. Oh, yeah. Well, we got a lot of fish helping us feed here on Radio Free Oz. This is the Oz team. I'm, I'm the host, Peter Bergen, our co-host, David Osman. Uh, Dave Maloney is our audio engineer and makes everything sound so good. Phil Fountain is our head of the design group, our designer extraordinaire. Tom Goodrillo is the webmaster. Scott Wilde, well, he, he's building the site and doing all the social media, and Chaz Glass is out there making the financials happen, and, and Bill McIntyre, well, Bill McIntyre is just producing the whole thing, and Patty Monet is starting to hold down the sports desk. Hold on!